Hello, listeners and readers. We are on the final chapter of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Thank you so much for coming along on this journey with me, reading and listening along. I so appreciate it. Book 5, Chapter 56. Saturday last Saturday in their old home. The next day was Katie's wedding day and they were going straight to their new home from the church. The movers were coming Monday morning for their stuff. They were leaving most of their furniture for the new janitress. They were taking only their personal belongings and the front room furniture. Francie wanted the green carpet with the big pink roses, the cream-colored lace curtains, and the lovely little piano. These things were to be installed in the room set aside for Francie in their new home. Katie insisted on working as usual that last Saturday morning. They laughed when their mother set out with her broom and pail. McShane had given her a checking account with a thousand dollars in it as a wedding present. According to Nolan's standards, Katie was rich now and didn't have to do another lick of work. Yet, she insisted on working that last day. Francie suspected that she had a sentimental feeling about the houses and wanted to give them a last good cleaning before she left. Shamelessly, Francie searched for the checkbook in her mother's purse and examined the only stub in the fabulous folder. Number 1, date 9-20-18, 2, Eva Flitman, 4, because she's my sister, total $1,000, amount this check $200. Balance forward $800. Francie wondered, why that amount? Why not $50 or $500? Why $200? Then she understood. $200 was the amount Uncle Willie was insured for, what Evie would have collected had he died. No doubt Katie considered Willie as good as dead. No check had been made out for Katie's wedding dress. She explained that she didn't want to use any of that money for herself until after she had married the giver. In order to buy the dress, she had borrowed the money she had saved for Francie, promising to give her a check for it as soon as the ceremony was over. On that last Saturday morning, Francie strapped Lori into her two-wheeled sulky and took her down on the street. She stood on the corner for a long time, watching the kids lug their junk up Manhattan Avenue to Carney's Junk Shop. Then she walked up that way and went into Cheap Charlie's during a lull in business. She put a 50-cent piece down on the counter and announced that she wanted to take all the pics. Ah, now, Francie, gee, Francie, he said. I don't have to bother picking. Just give me all the stuff on the board. 
Aw, listen. Then there aren't any prize numbers in that box, are there, Charlie? Christ, Francie, a feather has got to make a living, and it comes slow in this business, a penny at a time. I always thought those prizes were fake. You ought to be ashamed, fooling little kids that way. Don't say that. I give them a penny's worth of candy for each cent they spend here. The pickage just shows it's more interesting. And it makes them keep coming back, hoping. If they don't go here, they go across to Gimpy's, see? And it's better they come here because I'm a married man, he said virtuously. And I don't take girls in my back room, see? Oh, well, I guess there's something in what you say. Look, have you got a 50 cent doll? He dredged up an ugly-faced doll from under the counter. I only got a 69 cent doll, but I'll let you have it for 50 cents. I'll pay for it if you'll hang it up as a prize and let some kid win it. But look, Francie, a kid wins it. All the kids expect to win then, see? It's a bad example. Oh, for Christ's sake, she said, not profanely, but prayerfully. Let somebody win something just once. All right, all right, don't get excited now. I just want one little kid to get something for nothing. I'll put it up and I won't take the number out of the box either after you go. Satisfied? Thanks, Charlie. And I'll tell the winner the doll's name's Francie, see? Oh, no, you don't. Not with the face that doll's got. You know what, Francie? What? You're getting to be quite a girl. How old are you now? I'll be 17 in a couple of months. I remember you used to be a skinny, long-legged kid. Well, I think you'll make a nice-looking woman someday. Not pretty but something. Thanks for nothing, she laughed. Your kid's sister? He nodded at Lori. Uh-huh. First thing you know, she'll be lugging junk and coming in here with her pennies. One day they're babies and buggies and the next day they're in here taking pics. Kids grow up quick in this neighborhood. She'll never lug junk. And she'll never come in here either. That's right. I hear you're moving away. Yes, we're moving away. Well, the best of luck, Francie. She took Lori to the park, lifted her out of the sulky, and let her run around on the grass. A boy came by selling pretzels, and Francie bought one for a penny. She crumbled it into bits and scattered it on the grass. A flock of sooty sparrows appeared from nowhere and squabbled over the bits. Lori stumbled about trying to catch them. The bored birds let her get within inches of them before they lifted their wings and took off. The child screamed with delighted laughter each time a bird flew away. Pulling Lori along in the sulky, Francie went over for a last look at her old school. 
It was but a couple of blocks from the park which she visited every day, but for some reason or other, Francie had never gone back to see it since the night she graduated. She was surprised at how tiny it seemed now. She supposed the school was just as big as it had ever been, only her eyes had grown used to looking at bigger things. There's the school that Francie went to, she told Lori. Franny went to school, agreed Lori. Your papa came with me one day and sang a song. Papa? asked Lori, puzzled. I forgot. You never saw your papa. Lori saw papa. Man? Big man. She thought Francie meant McShane. That's right, agreed Francie. In the two years since she had last looked on the school, Francie had changed from a child to a woman. She went home past the house whose address she had claimed. It looked little and shabby to her now, but she still loved it. She passed McGarrity's saloon, only McGarrity didn't own it anymore. He had moved away early in the summer. He had confided in Neely that he, McGarrity, was a man who had his ear to the ground and was therefore in a position to hear prohibition coming. He was getting all set for it too. He bought a large pile on the Hampstead Turnpike out on Long Island and was systematically stocking its cellars with liquor against the day. As soon as prohibition came, he was going to open up what he called a club. He had the name picked out, the Club May Marie. His wife was going to wear an evening dress and be a hostess, which was right up her alley, McGarrity explained. Francie was sure that Mrs. McGarrity would be very happy as a hostess. She hoped that Mr. McGarrity would be happy someday too. After lunch, she went around to the library to turn in her books for the last time. The librarian stamped her card and shoved it back to her without, as usual, looking up. Could you recommend a good book for a girl? asked Francie. How old? She is eleven. The librarian brought up a book from under the desk. Francie saw the title, If I Were King. I don't really want to take it out, said Francie, and I'm not 11 years old. The librarian looked up at Francie for the first time. I've been coming here since I was a little girl, said Francie, and you never looked at me till now. There are so many children, said the librarian fretfully. I can't be looking at each one of them. Anything else? I just want to say about that brown bowl, what it has meant to me, the flower always in it. The librarian looked at the brown bowl. There was a spray of pink wild aster in it. Francie had an idea that the librarian was seeing the brown bowl for the first time also. Oh, that, the janitor puts the flowers in it, or somebody. Anything else? she asked impatiently. I'm turning in my card. 
Francie pushed the wrinkled, dog-eared card covered with stamped dates across the desk. The librarian picked it up and was about to tear it in two when Francie took it back from her. I guess I'll keep it after all, she said. She went out and took a last long look at the shabby little library. She knew she would never see it again. Eyes changed after they looked at new things. If in the years to be she were to come back, her new eyes might make everything seem different from the way she saw it now. The way it was now was the way she wanted to remember it. No, she'd never come back to the old neighborhood. Besides, in years to come, there would be no old neighborhood to come back to. After the war, the city was going to tear down the tenements and the ugly school where a woman principal used to whip little boys and build a model housing project on the site. A place of living where sunlight and air were to be trapped, measured, and weighed, and doled out so much per resident. Katie banged her broom and pail in the corner with that final bang that meant she was through. Then she picked up the broom and pail again and replaced them gently. As she dressed to go out, she was going for the last-minute fitting of the jade green velvet dress she had chosen to be married in. She fretted because the weather was so mild for the end of September. She thought it might be too warm to wear a velvet dress. She was angry that fall was so late in coming that year. She argued with Francie when Francie insisted that fall was here. Francie knew that autumn had come. Let the wind blow warm. Let the days be heat hazy. Nevertheless, autumn had come to Brooklyn. Francie knew that this was so because now, as soon as the night came and the street lights went on, the hot chestnut man set up his little stand on the corner. On the rack, above the charcoal fire, chestnuts roasted in a covered pan. The man held unroasted ones in his hand and made little crosses on them with a blunt knife before he put them in the pan. Yes, autumn had surely come when the hot chestnut man appeared, no matter what the weather said to the contrary. After Lori had been tucked into her crib for her afternoon nap, Francie packed a few last things in a wooden Fells Nampha soap box. From over the mantelpiece, she took down the crucifix and the picture of her and Neely on Confirmation Day. She wrapped these things in her first communion veil and placed them in the box. She folded her father's two waiter's aprons and put them in. She wrapped the shaving cup with the name John Nolan on it in gilt block letters in a white Georgette crepe blouse which Katie had put in the giveaway basket because its lace jabot had torn badly in the wash. It was the blouse Francie had worn that rainy night when she stood in the doorway with Lee. The doll named Mary 
and the pretty little box, which had once held ten gilded pennies, were stowed away next. Her sparse library went into the box. The Gideon Bible, the complete works of William Shakespeare, a tattered volume of Leaves of Grass, the three scrapbooks, the Nolan volume of contemporary poetry, the Nolan book of classical poems, and the book of Annie Laurie. She went into the bedroom, turned back her mattress, and took from underneath it a notebook in which she had kept a desultory diary during her 13th year and a square manila envelope. Kneeling before the box, she opened the diary and read a random entry dated September 24th, three years ago. Tonight, when I took a bath, I discovered I was changing into a woman. It's about time. She grinned as she packed the diary in the box. She looked at the writing on the envelope. Contents. One sealed envelope to be opened in 1967. One diploma, four stories. Four stories, which Miss Gardner had told her to burn. Ah, well. Francie remembered how she had promised God she'd give up writing if he wouldn't let Mother die. She had kept her promise. But she knew God a little better now. She was sure that he wouldn't care at all if she started to write again. Well, maybe she'd try again someday. She added her library card to the contents of the envelope, made an entry for it on the envelope, and put that in the box. Her packing was finished. All her possessions, except her clothes, were in that box. Neely came running up the stairs, whistling at the Darktown Strutter's ball. He burst into the kitchen, peeling off his coat. I'm in a hurry, Francie. Have I got a clean shirt? There's one washed, but not ironed. I'll iron it for you. She put the iron on to heat while she sprinkled the shirt and set up the ironing board on two chairs. Neely got the shoe shine kit from the closet and proceeded to put a higher shine on his already flawlessly polished shoes. Going somewhere? she asked. Yep, just got time to catch the show. They've got Van and Schneck, and boy can Schneck sing. He sits at the piano like this. Neely sat at the kitchen table and demonstrated. He sits sideways and crosses his legs, looking out at the audience. Then he leans his left elbow on the music rack and picks out the tune with his right hand while he sings. Neely went into a fair imitation of his idol singing, When You're a Long, Long Way From Home. Yep, he's swell. He sings the way Papa used to. A little. Papa. Francie looked for the union label in Neely's shirt and pressed that first. That label is like an ornament, like a rose you wear. The Nolans sought for the union label on everything they bought. It was their memorial to Johnny. Neely looked at himself in the glass hanging over the sink. Do you think I need a shave? He asked. Not for five years yet. Ah, oh, shut up.
Don't say shut up to each other, said Francie, imitating her mother. Neely smiled and proceeded to scrub his face, neck, arms, and hands. He sang as he washed. There's Egypt in your dreamy eyes, a bit of Caro in your style. Francie ironed away contentedly. Neely was dressed at last. He stood before her in his dark blue double-breasted suit, fresh white shirt with a soft turned-down collar and a polka dot bow tie. He smelled fresh and clean from washing and his curly blonde hair gleamed. How do I look, prima donna? He buttoned up his coat jauntily and Francie saw that he wore their father's signet ring. It was true then, what grandma had said, that the Romley women had the gift of seeing the ghosts of their beloved dead. Francie saw her father. Neely, do you still remember Molly Malone? He put a hand in his pocket, turned away from her and sang, in Dublin's fair city, the girls are so pretty. Papa, <laughs> Papa. Neely had the same clear, true voice. And how unbelievably handsome he was. So handsome that even though he wasn't 16 years old, old yet, women turned to look after him with a sigh when he walked down the street. He was so handsome that Francie felt like a dark drab alongside of him. Neely, do you think I'm good looking? Look, why don't you make up a novena, make a novena to Saint Teresa about it? I think a miracle might fix you up. No, I mean it. Why don't you get your hair cut off and wear it in curls like the other girls instead of those chunks round wound round your head. I have to wait until I'm 18 on account of mother. But do you think I'm good looking? Ask me again when you fill out a little more. Please tell me. He examined her carefully then said, you'll pass. She had to be satisfied with that. He had said he was in a hurry, but now he seemed reluctant to go. Francie, McShane, I mean, Dad, will be here for supper tonight. I'm working afterwards. Tomorrow will be the wedding and a party in the new house tomorrow night. Monday I have to go to school. And while I'm there, you'll be getting on that Wolverine train from Michigan. There will be no chance to say goodbye to you alone. So I'll say goodbye now. I'll be home for Christmas, Neely but it won't be the same. I know. He waited. Francie extended her right hand. He pushed her hand aside, put his arms around her, and kissed her on the cheek. Francie clung to him and started to cry. He pushed her away. Gee, girls make me sick, he said, always so mushy. But his voice was ragged, as though he, too, was going to cry. He turned and ran out of the flat. Francie went out into the hallway and watched him run down the steps. He paused in the well of darkness at the foot of the stairs and turned to look back up at her. Although it was dark, there was brightness where he stood. So like Papa, 
so like Papa, she thought, and he had more strength in his face than Papa had had. He waved to her, then he was gone. Four o'clock. Francie decided to get dressed first and then fix supper so that she'd be all ready when Ben came to call for her. He had tickets and they were going to see Henry Hull in The Man Who Came Back. It was their last date until Christmas because Ben was leaving for college tomorrow. She liked Ben. She liked him an awful lot. She wished that she could love him. If only he wasn't so sure of himself all the time. If only he'd stumble just once. If only he needed her. Ah oh, well, she had five years to think it over. She stood before the mirror in her white slip. As she curved her arm over her head in washing, she remembered how she had sat on the fire escape when a little girl and watched the big girls in the flats across the yards getting ready for their dates. Was someone watching her as she had once watched? She looked towards the window. Yes, across two yards, she saw a little girl sitting on a fire escape with a book in her lap and a bag of candy at hand. The girl was peering through the bars at Francie. Francie knew the girl too. She was a slender little thing of 10 and her name was Flory Wendy. Francie brushed out her long hair, braided it and wound the braids around her head. She put on fresh stockings and white high-heeled pumps. Before she slipped a fresh pink linen dress over her head, she sprinkled violet sachet powder on a square of cotton and tucked it inside her brassiere. She thought she heard Fraber's wagon come in. She leaned out the window and looked. Yes, the wagon had come in, only it wasn't a wagon anymore. It was a small maroon motor truck with the name in gilt letters on the sides and the man making preparations to wash wasn't Frank, nice young man with the rosy cheeks. He was a little bandy-legged, draft-exempt fellow. She looked across the yards and saw that Flory was still staring at her through the bars of the fire escape. Francie waved and yelled, Hello, Francie. My name ain't Francie, the little girl yelled back. It's Flory, and you know it too. I know said Francie. She looked down into the yard. The tree whose leaf umbrellas had curled around under and over her fire escape had been cut down because the housewives complained that wash on the lines got entangled in its branches. The landlord had sent two men and they had chopped it down. But the tree hadn't died. It hadn't died. A new tree had grown from the stump and its trunk had grown along the ground until it reached a place where there were no wash lines above it. Then it had started to grow towards the sky again. Annie, the fir tree that the Nolans had cherished with waterings and manurings, had long since sickened and died. But this tree in the yard, this tree that men chopped down, 
This tree that they had built a bonfire around, trying to burn up its stump, this tree lived. It lived, and nothing could destroy it. Once more, she looked at Flory Wendy reading on the fire escape. Goodbye, Francie, she whispered. She closed the window.